This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 154 of the Sustainable-ish podcast. Thank you so much. I know I say it every time, but it really is heartfelt. Thank you so much for joining me. It really is great to have you here. Now, I know from hearing from you guys, from hearing from people on social media, that I am not alone in occasionally feeling a little bit, what's the point? Do my actions really make a difference? Will it really make any odds in the grand scheme of things if I recycle this bottle, buy this new pair of jeans, or even take that flight? It's really easy to feel like our individual actions are inconsequential in the face of the overwhelming enormity of the climate crisis and the sheer scale of the changes that need to happen. Which is why my attention was caught by a sentence in a book that I read recently. The book, uh, if anyone is wondering, is Zero Altitude by Helen Coffey. I would hugely recommend it. And you can listen to my interview with Helen in episode 143 if you want to go and have a little listen to that. So anyway, reading this book and the sentence I came across was about this idea of individual actions having a ripple effect that can start a public conversation. And I bang on endlessly about this ripple effect of our actions in the Sustainable-ish clubhouse. And once you start to notice it, I guarantee it, you really will see it in action. So the book then went on to refer to a study by someone called Steve Westlake, who looked at the impact it has when one person tells their family and friends that they're giving up flying for climate reasons. And Steve found in his study that half of respondents who knew someone who had given up flying because of climate change said that they flew less because of their example. How cool is that? So I was absolutely fascinated by this and promptly did a quick Ecosia search. For those of you who don't know, Ecosia is a brilliant search engine that you can use instead of Google and they use their ad revenue to plant trees so you get to kind of feel good while endlessly scrolling the internet. Anyway, so I did a quick Ecosia search for Steve Westlake and it turns out that he's a PhD student at Cardiff University exploring how leading by example can influence behaviours and attitude towards climate change. Which, I don't know about you, but I totally wanted to hear more about. So in my usual slightly overexcited way, I got in touch with Steve and invited him on the podcast to talk about his research. And I am delighted to say that he accepted and that this is our chat. Enjoy. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jen. Thank you for having me. 
Um, we, oh, I say at the beginning of every episode, I'm so excited about diving into this, but this is something a little bit different, I think, and something that, that I talk about a lot sort of when I'm talking to people uh, on socials and to my audience and things, but I don't know that we haven't talked about it before in the podcast, but I'm getting very ahead of myself. Can you introduce yourself to us? Yeah, my name's Steve Westlake. I'm a PhD researcher at Cardiff University, and I'm looking into social influence when it comes to pro-environmental behaviour and to what extent we're influenced by other people, um, maybe friends or family, but particularly leaders, people in leadership positions. So that could be celebrities or politicians or business leaders, anybody who says climate change is important and behaviour change is part of that and who in effect has a bit of reach and people might look up to them or listen to what they say because of their position within society. So that's as my that's my definition of leaders. And I'm looking to see whether leaders who lead by example with strong pro-environmental behavior, whether people will take notice of that, whether it matters, whether people will emulate it, whether it will backfire and people will be turned off by it. So I'm looking at all these social processes and trying to um, establish whether leading by example is is could be an important part of the transition amazing and so how did you get into this I presume you know you don't just sort of walk off the streets and say I want to do a PhD in uh, behavior change and um, behavioral nudges and all that sort of thing what's what's what led you to this yeah it was a bit of a pathway so I was I got particularly interested in climate change probably seven eight nine years ago and I'd been interested in envir- environmental issues when I was younger, but I, I got really back into it and did a master's degree in climate change. And so that covered the climate science and the business and the economic, economic angles. And also, obviously, the real steep emissions curve, which we need to follow, reducing emissions very, very quickly. It struck me that my behavior, the stuff I'd done in my life, I'd flown quite a lot for work, you see, previously, and I'd flown for for leisure activities, holidays, etc., in, in what I consider to be a fairly normal way. But I, when I started really re-engaging with climate change, I thought, actually, um, I'm not sure about this. It seems as though um, I can't really keep on flying at that level. And I was particularly influenced by somebody, by Professor Kevin Anderson in particular, who's very strong and quite vocal on this stuff, saying, if you understand the, the speed with which we need to decarbonize, and the inequality of emissions between the global north and the global south, then it doesn't make sense to keep um, doing this stuff if you have a choice. And that really resonated with me. So I, I changed my behavior in part because of that. And I was just interested in whether that sort of effect of somebody in a leadership position or an influential position was widespread or not very widespread. So it was only a few people like myself who were influenced and everybody else was just going along as normal. And I suppose I was also struck by what seemed to me to be a contradiction in wealthy societies where really we're not changing our behaviour. Leaders aren't really changing their behaviour, apparently, or at least it's not um, made very obvious. And it seemed to be a contradiction. So I was just interested in in that whole area of of behaviour change but particularly looking at the kind of the hierarchies involved in terms of emission levels. So mm. obviously some people have 
very high lifestyle emissions, some people very low. And that difference doesn't seem to be a problem in, in, in discussions. It's sort of, it's just the way things are. So I was interested in that. And I did the master's degree. And as part of my research, my dissertation research, I looked at this idea of social influence, particularly around flying and whether leaders who stopped flying because of climate change, of which there are a few, um, obviously Greta Thunberg is, is a more recent one. She hadn't done that when I was doing my research, but obviously Greta is a very well-known example, whether that has influence on people and to what extent. And so I did a survey and I did some interviews and found that there seemed to be quite a strong effect. So lots of people reported that if they knew somebody who'd given up flying, it really influenced their attitudes quite a lot. And for quite a few people, for about half the people who know someone who's given up, they reduced their flying as well. And it was more pronounced, a greater effect if that person was high profile. So when, when you say know somebody, is that, you know, they're, they're my friend or is it somebody I follow on social media or it's the CEO of my company or you just need to know of them? Exactly. Yeah, it could be any of those things. So you need to know of them. So it's, some, it's in effect being aware of somebody who's stopped flying because of climate change. So okay. it's, yeah, that, that's the criteria. Yeah, people who know someone who, is, who are aware of someone who's done that reported quite a lot of influence and so that really struck me as being as being really interesting and obviously during that process I'd looked around for other research and there there isn't very much research on this at all so I thought okay well I'm really interested in this the results seem really interesting and people are people are people took seem to take quite a lot of notice of that piece of research that I did Um, and so I thought well okay there's a there's a an audience for this so I'll do a bit more and I yeah. find it very interesting and um I mean this is completely not related to, to what you're doing but like with PhDs how does it work do you think I've got this idea and you go to university and they say yeah and you fund yourself to do it or is there funding to do it or I, I have no idea how these things work it really depends so all of those things can happen so you have PhDs which are set by in effect by the supervisors or the academics and they want somebody to come and do this PhD to extend the research both for the sake of the candidate and for the sake of getting this particular bit of research done that's a very common model and then for instance with my one effectively I went to uh, some senior academics who were researching in this area anyway and I said I would like to do a PhD preferably in this area because I think it's really interesting and I've done some some initial research and they said yes okay and funding is available there was funding I, mine was funded so I got a stipend not a huge amount of money but enough to live on funding can come from various sources so it can mm. come from the university itself or it can come from other funding bodies some people put themselves through a PhD yeah so all of those yeah models exist um just to to dial back to to when you were talking about your or one of your initial prompts and I think you said it was Kevin Anderson who you knew had given up flying and he was he took talks about the sort of the climate injustice I guess or the the global can you just explain that a little bit more to people who might not have really either come across that before or thought about this before because this is something that I do carbon literacy training and it's something that we sort of go into in a little bit of depth and um it feels like we all kind of know it, but we sort of look away from it because it's quite uncomfortable, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And it it shines a light on on our you know societies and our politics and our you know privilege, really. So obviously the global north, the kind of Western, highly developed countries uh, have higher emissions per capita by a long way than many countries in the global south and multiples, you know, many, many times, 20 times, even 50 times more. So obviously there's a sliding scale within that. So I think, you know, countries like Australia and the States and Saudi Arabia and I think Qatar are really high up there in terms of per capita emissions and countries in the global south tend to be much lower. And that's been a historic situation and it is the current situation. So there's this idea of carbon budgets, which is the amount of carbon we've got left to emit to stay within certain temperature limits. So there's a carbon budget to stay within 1.5 degrees, similarly to stay below two degrees. And that's being eaten up all the time by carbon emissions. And some of those are due to our own activities and things we choose to do. Obviously, lots of the stuff, we don't have much choice if we're going to work and we have very limited options. But some of the stuff we do have choice and the more carbon emissions one person is responsible for, probably the more choice they have. So if you travel intercontinentally by, by plane dozens of times a year, which some people do, then you probably have quite a lot of choice about that. You could change that. Um, so there is there a moral imperative to change that? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, quite quickly it becomes, well, as I mentioned, you know, a moral imperative, it does become a moral question. And for instance, Kevin Anderson is very strong on this. And, you know, morality is, is pretty much embedded in the climate issue. What um, should we be doing? Because it's the right thing to do and it's a good thing to do. Mm. And that, you know, says we obviously makes makes us question everything we do potentially. Should we go on holiday? Should one, you know, the family have their one holiday per year? Is it right to prevent them doing that for the sake of the climate change? Now, that's a very commonly discussed idea. Obviously, that's a particular framing of it, and it's potentially used to to in effect close down arguments of of personal responsibility but yeah the 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 idea of this um there's a kind of global north global south simplistic divide there in terms of emissions but also within countries and this is the thing that gets discussed much less is this idea that even though know, even within a wealthy country like the uk there's a huge disparity of individual emissions so per capita emissions i think the uk is about seven tons six to seven tons which is you know, pretty good going considering where we were. We've closed a lot of coal power stations and that's made a big effect. But we're still way above the global south. And within that six to seven tons, that's an average. There are some people who have individual emissions, which are, you know, hundreds of tons. And some people who are much, much lower. And those issues of, of justice, in effect, are, are key and will probably become more and more important as carbon budgets reduce. Yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, it's this idea that I was asked to go on um, like a Radio 4 programme and they were, you know, said, what tips have you got for people on really low budgets to still be, you know, e to be as eco-friendly as possible? And I kind of feel like that's not the conversation we ought to be having. If you're already on a really low budget, you are by def definition, 
living a really low carbon lifestyle because you can't afford to go flying on holiday you can't afford to waste food you can't afford to you know and and actually the conversation that I haven't seen happening is what is the exactly as you said the the responsibility of um the really high emitters but also I guess those of us who might be fortunate enough to be in a bracket we're not a really high emitter but there are still some choices that we could make that might feel like a personal sacrifice and should we be making them and that's becomes really uncomfortable doesn't it which I think is probably why we have we don't have to see that discussion happening I think that's yeah that's right it does become uncomfortable um, but I think also there's something else going on which makes it a little bit of a taboo is that the implications of those conversations about relative personal responsibility if you take them to the logical conclusion then the people who have the highest emissions need to reduce the most I think, I think that's a fairly basic conclusion that you would come to if you have an idea of justice this needs to be done in a fair way well clearly the people who are emitting the most have the most scope to reduce it they should do it the most they should probably do it first and fastest however that has deep political consequences and consequences for um, ideas of how we set up our society because it does shine a light on on inequality and privilege and wealth in a way that obviously there are political connotations to that people will say oh it's a left-wing agenda mm. you're trying to redistribute wealth by through the back door through climate change you know that's i think that's a fairly common narrative that argue, argues against it but it is um it's a, a clear conclusion if you look at the the graphs you know there's there are some pretty interesting graphs that just show the emissions allocated to you know one percent of the population the wealthiest one percent compared to the wealthiest ten percent compared to the the next forty percent and then the rest of the world the fifty percent and they're just vast vast differences and so there tends to be a a narrative of everybody needs to change and I think you you mentioned that it's you know how can we advise somebody who's already struggling a bit how can they be even better and really that's not where we should be looking because it's not it's not particularly logical in that it's really going to be really really hard for those people and the difference it will makes it will make will be very small certainly for each individual whereas if you look at the other end of the scale if you shine the light upwards then that's where some big changes can be made and and also and this is one of the things i'm particularly interested in not only will it change actual emissions so for instance if somebody who's um, has a very, very large carbon footprint and is in a leadership position, is in a high profile position. If they make fairly substantial changes, that will make you know very big difference to their carbon footprint. But it will also send a societal signal that, first of all, that they're serious, that they're committed, that they're um, they really believe climate change is an issue. And th these are all the the elements of social signaling that I'm looking at in my PhD research, which is what do we interpret when somebody does that and yeah. similarly what do we interpret if they don't do that yeah if, we, if they don't do it then we don't really think they're serious um we don't think they're that committed we don't like them as much so in terms of leaders if leaders don't walk the talk then we'll we'll view them as not not as good leaders we'll think they're not you know as effective or knowledgeable okay which may have implications for how well they can lead because if the perceptions of them aren't as good then they're not going to be as effective leaders I'm like 
frantically nodding along to everything that you're saying because I mean yeah can you imagine the difference it would make if every social media influencer if every football player if every you know was talking about this I know actually Gary Lineker's been talking quite a lot on Twitter about things that he's you know and the, the backlash he gets and and absolutely fair play to him for kind of carrying on and pushing through that and things but I'm just so excited to see somebody of his profile talking about this Deborah Meaden started doing it you know she's she's got a, a new podcast from Dragon's Den and and I just think that's huge it's so powerful and and we will come on to this but you know how do we um harness that how do we get in touch with those celebrities how do we get you know all those kinds of things but um before we dive into that I'm sure a question that you must get put to you a lot is what's the point how much difference can individual behavioral change really make because I get that a lot (laughs) yeah indeed I think it depends how you view the question so you can answer that very directly and say how big is your carbon footprint how much can you reduce it that's the difference it will make. And you say, well, okay, it can make, you know, one ton of carbon a year compared to gigatons. So it's not really worth it. It doesn't really make much difference. So that's viewing the individual as an individual and it's viewing climate change as a spreadsheet level problem where you're adding up every single ton of carbon, which obviously you are. But social systems um, work very differently to that. And we are within social networks and so the signals we send and you know our society is built on cooperation and social norms and that's why humans are so successful because they've developed a society where we can all cooperate with people we don't know because of social norms and shared understandings and those are based to quite a heavy extent on what everybody else is doing and what everybody else thinks is a good thing to do and what we believe is is the correct and right and moral way to act and those are largely based on what people do all the time and what they don't do all the time so if we change our behavior and we communicate it in whatever way we feel is appropriate then that does send social signals to other people those social signals in terms of the power and the potential of them is highly likely to be related to social status and however you want to understand that. So people with high social status, you mentioned Gary Lineker, Deborah Meaden, people pay extra attention to those people because they're successful. Perhaps we've evolved to pay attention to them because people who are in positions of prestige are people who are worth following and worth emulating because they wouldn't have that prestige unless that was the case. Now, we've probably evolved to pay extra attention to people in in positions of prestige. So those people have a lot of social influence. And if they change their behavior, people are going to look at them and say, why are they doing that? Especially if it's deemed to be hard in some way for them, difficult, a sacrifice, which is a a bit of a taboo word in climate change. But if if people do something that's difficult, we pay extra attention to it. Because we go, why is why are they doing something that's difficult? They must really mean it. They must be really serious. And what they're doing must be a value. For them to give something up, it must be a value. They must be getting something in return. And so we pay extra attention to these signals. And that's why what we do as individuals does have an effect on other people. Now, that's not to say you, you know, change your behavior and everybody's going to go, ah, oh, Jen's changed their behavior. 
Jen's great. I'm going to do it too. And we've probably all noticed that that doesn't happen. Um, and I'm sure, I know that there are lots of people who've been involved in this far longer than I have, uh, who've, you know, over decades made very strong changes to their lives out of a, you know, a feeling that this is the right thing to do. And, you know, nobody else has done it from their perspective. And I think that's a very understandable frustration. However, maybe we're at a point where more and more and more people are going to change their behavior. And hopefully with people in leadership positions, in prestigious positions, also signaling, there's a reinforcing effect such that somebody does it, somebody identifies with it and does it too. Yes, It gets talked about and there's a reinforcing social tipping point potentially. George Mumbio talks about about this sorry to interrupt I don't know if you've seen he, he did a video and I can link to it in the show notes and he talks about this sort of social tipping point in these social norms of being about 25% of the population and once you get about 25% of the population doing something that's when that's the tipping point and that's the point at which social change happens so if 25 and I often give the example of you know mask wearing during covid that became a social norm didn't it quite quickly and we can probably all kind of think oh yeah if about quarter of the people were wearing masks I'd probably feel a bit uncomfortable if I wasn't and put one on and and you can kind of see how these things work is that I don't know if you have been able to sort of quantify it or if that's come up in your work or whatever but does that 25 percent figure feel about right I don't know no that hasn't come up and no, I don't that know that particular figure. Um, it could well be. Because we hear that sort of three and a half percent figure, don't we? When we um, people yeah. talking about um, sort of uh, racial um, change, you know, with oh Martin Luther King and, you know, mm. all that it takes three and a half percent of the population to stand up and say no to something for things to start changing. But I thought this was a, you know, a, a slightly different take on it. Yeah. No, I don't know the figures. And I think they'll probably be contested in the sense that it would be hard to prove mm. that because obviously our social systems are so complex that it's hard to prove cause and effect. Yes. But certainly that idea of tipping points um, is being more and more researched at the moment um, with a view to making changes. And there are so many things that feed into it as well. So my particular <laughs> focus is, is leadership and um yeah, the power of, of that example. For instance, you mentioned the COVID and mask wearing, and you probably remember at the beginning of the, of the, well, I mean, beginning and throughout, but at the beginning of the pandemic, there was the issue where the Prime Minister Boris Johnson initially wasn't wearing a mask. And he was, in terms of his sort of embodied social signals, he was, he, he went to a hospital and, was, you know, he said, oh, I was shaking hands with everybody. So there was this physical image of the leader acting out his interpretation of the risks of COVID, and that was that they weren't very big. And that kind of signalling, physical signalling, I think is really important. And that's part of the research that I'm trying to do is that this embodiment of the problem. At the moment, most people, including our leaders, embody climate change in a particular way. And that is that really we go, we kind of keep going as we are, hoping and you know, trying to make happen technical advances and yeah. political changes that will lead us to a low carbon society. So it's a technocratic solutions based approach in the future. But in terms of embodiment, we just kind of go along as we are. And that, I think, sends very quite strong signals that everything's fine, nothing needs to change. 
that's kind of where we are at the moment in terms of our leadership. And that's what I think if that changed, then, then it would be extremely significant because people would see and they believe it. I mean, obviously you'd have all these things will have a lot of pushback. If leaders began to change their behavior, there would be a pushback. There'll be a reactance against it. However, it would send very strong signals and yeah. potentially usher in rapid change. So in terms of our leaders, let's just keep it political for a minute, because I think we can all probably imagine, you know, our politicians not really embodying the, the changes that need to happen. So the example of Boris Johnson flying down to Cornwall, wasn't it, for a climate talk and all those sorts of things. Are our leaders, and you're not, this is a, a, an unfair question to ask, are our leaders reluctant to change behaviours because they don't want to make the personal sacrifice are they reluctant to ask us to make the personal like why why aren't we having these conversations at these high levels about behavior change it all you know people say oh it's not fair and it's all pushed down on the individual and it and it kind of yeah we aren't seeing our leaders make these changes and and did anything around your research explore that or is that another another phd for another time i've touched on it so i've in, i've in, interviewed some mps about their conceptions of leadership and behaviour change. And obviously MPs, politicians are in a particular particular position where they are representing various constituencies and various interests and highly sensitised to those constituencies. And so they have to behave and talk and communicate in a way that balances all these competing interests. And the perception is that behaviour change, significant behaviour change, which may involve sacrifices, is off limits and is toxic politically and is not what people want to do. And therefore, we can't frame it like that. And we can only stay within very, the ideas of very small incremental changes. Now, part of that, I think, is based on an assessment of what the public would accept. But then there's a whole economic and social and um, power related element to that as well because if you begin to accept that people's behavior is going to have to change significantly particularly people who engage in a lot of high carbon activities people who fly a lot people who drive huge cars long distances people who live in big houses multiple houses and heat large amount of space for a few people if you begin to acknowledge that that's going to have to change, there are you know, big societal implications for that. And for especially um, for certain political standpoints, that's anathema, really, because it's in effect saying the most privileged will have to change the most and inequality will have to reduce. And whilst that's fine on paper and ideas of justice are spoken of quite liberally, liberally as in quite a lot the um, realities of it are you know politically have a lot of political implications and so certain politicians or indeed leaders can't really talk about it you know kind of don't want to and the interests that they represent really wouldn't want them to do it so if they start if they start saying it you know for instance if Boris Johnson as was if he'd said actually um, people who fly a lot really need to need to fly much less and we've got to do this in a fair and just way and I'm the man to do it 
there would be outcry. <laughs> there would be outcry from from all kinds of um, of all kinds of sources. Um, you know, and for instance, you know, business interests are, are obviously threatened by that as well. So, I think it's mul- there are multiple reasons why it's in effect a taboo subject. Yeah. So, as as a, a leader, as an MP. And I'm just going to keep coming back to this example just because it's the one that stuck in my mind. So Boris Johnson getting the um, flying from, he could have got the train and said, I'm getting the train because it's lower carbon. He's not telling anybody else what to do, but he's modelling that behaviour. I'm sure he would still have, you know, got a backlash, but he got a backlash about flying. I understand there's a defensiveness that comes when people perceive that they're being told what to do and they're told they can't do this and they can't do that. And who are you to tell me what to do? And especially, you know, as all the politicians or leaders aren't modelling these own behaviours and things. But there must be a power in just being seen to be doing this stuff and not necessarily making it a political statement or, do you know, anything like that. It's just I got the train because it was the lower carbon thing to do and I'm trying to reduce my own personal carbon footprint. Yeah, I think, I mean, my personal view and, um, well, yeah, my personal view is that it was an active choice. Mm. So it wasn't an oversight or just a convenience to get the plane because he got the plane back from COP26 as well. Right. From Glasgow to London when there was a train, lots of people travelled by train. So I think it was an active choice and an active political choice. And in effect, it was saying we don't need to change our behaviour. and that was backed up for instance there was a a report from the government when they did a big series of net zero reports and policy documents and one of them was a behavior change document written by the behavioral insights team or the nudge unit as was and that was published i think in maybe september october last year and it was published on the website and immediately taken down 2 hours later because it had some quite strong narratives around leading by example and reducing emissions personal emissions and being consistent between words and actions yeah and and in effect it was deleted by the government because it doesn't fit as particular narrative now when boris johnson flew to g7 which you mentioned yes, he actually defended his flight saying the uk is a pioneer of sustainable aviation fuels we have a jet zero strategy therefore you're wrong to criticise me flying to Cornwall from London. So his 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 solution was very much tech will fix it, and that is obviously highly um, appealing to to a, a status quo mindset, saying we we can't really make difficult choices around behaviour or changing changing society. So we'll rely on technology. Yeah, um, and to that point. Can we rely on technology? This might seem like a really obvious question, but, you know, there are lots. That is the messaging we're getting, isn't it? And that, you know, carbon capture is going to come along and save us all. And we're going to have all these new, wonderful technologies. um, And we can exactly, as you said, maintain the status quo. Is that true? No. And the science is super clear on this. And the IPCC, for the first time in their latest report, so the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report and they had a whole chapter for the first time on demand side solutions, i.e. consumption and how we mm. have need to reduce consumption. And that will involve people and needs to happen fast. And also is, in, a, in some ways, it's low hanging fruit because we can, we could do it tomorrow or at least within the next year or two. 
And technology is, is essential, of course, and nobody's dissing technology and new technology is fantastic and we need it, definitely. But firstly, the opportunities for demand side reductions are very large and necessary and can be done in the short term. But also the uptake of technology and the acceptance of it will require people to change their behavior as well and probably to incur some costs as well. So um, no, absolutely no, the we can't rely just on technology. Yeah. So your to, to your PhD, how long have you been doing it? You probably don't want to be reminded of this. <laughs> but I've been doing it for four years. So four I'm, years, I'm wow. at my limit now. I've got to, I've yeah, got to I bet. shortly. So how do you even start to investigate this? How do you, I guess you need to find some leaders who are doing stuff and some who aren't, or how does it even work? I guess it starts with it starts with the theory of of what what you're looking for, and so then you do a whole load of reading about what particularly you're interested in. I was particularly in, interested in this idea of leadership. Mm. So there are lots of calls for climate leadership all the time. Um, David Attenborough did a very strong call for climate leaders and said. I think it was in 2008 at one of the UN conferences and he said, leaders of the world, the future of the planet is in your hands. So he was loading up the responsibility on leaders. And there's lots of talk of climate leadership. And there's also talk of leading by example at a national level. So the UK, for instance, I think other countries, Germany might do it sometimes, Sweden, the US recently, more recently, has, has said that they must lead by example. And if you lead by example at national level, then other countries will follow and you're setting an example of how to decarbonize and retain standards of living. So these narratives of leading by example and leadership are very strong, but they're not translated into personal level leadership. So that was my starting point. And then I thought, okay, what am I, what am I looking for? And effectively, you, you come up with a research question. My research question was, if leaders do it, will other people follow suit? Will they change their behavior? Will the leaders be better leaders if they lead by example? Those are effectively to my two research questions. And then you go, well, how can I find that out? And then you have to think, what is practical for me to do within the budget and the time <laughs> and the scope of one researcher? So... Yeah, you say, okay, well, I, I want to interview some leaders because I want to know, especially political leaders, because I think they're particularly important. Mm. I want to know whether they think they can do it. You know, do leaders just think it's impossible for them? What would the publics think? Do they want leaders to do this? Because obviously, if there's no appetite for it anyway, then it might be, it might be pointless. So I did some focus groups with members of the public saying, here's some examples of leadership. What do you think? And getting some fairly um, ground level data on the responses, the likely responses to leaders. And then I've done a survey, an experiment. So trying to, in science, as you probably know, experiments are one of the gold standards in terms of, you know, actually trying to prove something is actually going on. If you, if you can make a very clear difference between doing one thing and doing another, i.e. leading by example, what happens not leading by example, what happens and compare those two, what happens is then you can make conclusions. So I've done that. I did a, a survey experiment where people were faced with a leader leading by a leader walking the talk in effect and a leader not walking the talk. And then I answered the same question saying, 
is it a good leader? How much are you willing to change your behavior without people knowing that they were in either of these two conditions? So that's basically how I've done it. Amazing. And you said before we hit record, you're you're kind of writing up your last chapter Mm. at the moment. How many spoilers are you allowed to give us? Like, can you? (laughs) I mean, no, I'm happy to give out everything because. So my results show indicate that leaders who lead by example increase people's willingness to act. So people's own willingness to take strong pro-environmental behaviour. In my experiment, it, improve, it increases it a bit. So people who are leaders who lead by example increase other people's willingness a little bit. And that's just in response to a scenario where you see a leader who's leading by example or not. But the, the really big effects are on the perceptions of the leader. So if they don't lead by example, then people think much less of them. Much less of them in general or as, a, you know, an environmental leader. So say, for example, I don't know, we look at Boris Johnson versus someone like Caroline Lucas. Um, you know, she very, in my mind, seems to be, you know, leading by example and, and doing lots of the right behaviour modelling and all that sort of thing. And, and I think she's, and I'm massively biased because of my politics, but, you know, I think she's a really great mm. uh, leadership figure. Boris Johnson can say all this, whatever he likes about climate, but I don't really believe it because he's not walking the walk and he doesn't seem to be leading by example. Is that? Yes, exactly that. So, so they're so, not seen as a great climate leader or a great leader in general? I think both, but because the whole thing was in the context of of climate, yeah, um, I could only say that they're not seen as a great climate leader. So mm. they're not seen as a good leader in the context of climate change. But the a lot of the measures were just general leadership measures. measures. So it was, you know, warmth, how, much, how warm in effect, how warm or close do you feel to this person? How much do you think they share your values? Right. Um, how effective are they? How good are they at persuading other people? So lots of the measures were about some fairly standard appraisals of leaders in general. So my my guess would be that it's, it applies to leadership in general, but much more specifically towards climate. So yeah, for instance, the flying back, and just to be you know balanced, I think you know for instance, Keir Starmer's hopped off a plane. Yes, and I can't remember where it was, but he took a, you know a fairly short um, domestic flight to somewhere where people said you could have got there by train. So it's not it's not a partisan thing, but. Um, yeah. I've spoken to lots of people about it and people bring up the, the Boris Johnson. I don't think it's just people who are super into the environmental issues. I think people really do see a, a, a this, this contradiction. And it's, it's difficult because obviously life involves doing activities. If you travel at all, then you're using energy that you might not need to use. Um, obviously, leaders themselves, especially prime ministers, world leaders, need to travel long distances fast. So it's not a black and white issue, obviously, about oh, everybody should, should stop doing everything. And leaders themselves need some dispensation and obviously are justified in, in having high carbon lifestyles. But there is an, uh, this inconsistency. And I think this goes to the heart of cries of hypocrisy, whether it's um, celebrities or politicians, that when there is a, an apparent inconsistency between the behaviour and the message, then that is when credibility can be lost. But the thing that I've found in my research as well, people are 
quite, you know, very sophisticated actually in their appraisals of actions and words and whether they're consistent. So people wouldn't just say, although the media will react in a certain way and present stories of hypocrisy in quite a shrill way, which, you know, apparently seems to lead to this idea that, oh, well, nobody can do anything, nobody's pure, so we should really not talk about individual behaviour. Actually, people are quite sophisticated in their appraisal. So if Boris Johnson flies back from um, from COP26 or Keir Starmer takes an internal flight, people won't automatically assume they're a terrible climate leader, they're a massive hypocrite, and write them off. People will look at the detail of it and go, why were they travelling? Did they have a good reason to do it? What's the con- general context of um, their their schedule, etc., and make a judgment? And it won't be as simplistic as, "Oh, they're on a plane; they're a hypocrite." Um, mm. I can write them off, even though discursively that is sometimes how it comes out. Well, that hypocrisy thing is really difficult, isn't it? Because you mentioned um, Greta earlier, and there was a big. Um, hoo-ha on social media about she was a picture of her taking a train somewhere because she wasn't flying I think it was maybe part of her journey over to America and she was sat there surrounded by single-use plastic pots for the food that she was eating and she was called out for being a hypocrite and I think it's really difficult isn't it because on the one hand you you want to be seen to be doing these things and to be you know putting out the correct messaging but none of us is perfect and um it's trying to balance that I guess isn't it and be able to have that discussion without I don't know descending into you know what are the big things we need to be worrying about in terms of our carbon footprint I guess in our behavioral choices and what are the things that yes do make a little difference but in terms of impact and all those it becomes yeah. a really nuanced conversation which we're not very good at and social media is not very good at. No exactly I think the media and social media makes that a kind of apparently difficult and, and clearly very difficult. And for the people involved, a bit of a nightmare, definitely. Mm. So if you're a high profile climate person and you live and breathe, then you're <laughs> up for accusations of hypocrisy. Um, so yeah, pretty hard for them. But however, I think there's a relatively small portion of the population who will be res- making those simplistic judgments of hypocrisy. And most people won't be doing that. Yes. Even though they are definitely manipulated and used to try and discredit um, people like Greta or climate scientists or or even politicians. But also, I think that argument is used to say, well, nobody can be perfect. So let's forget about it. Yes. And I think that's also another way that that argument can be, in effect, abused. So it can be abused from the idea of everyone's a hypocrite. Anybody who advocates for climate is a hypocrite because they, because they, whatever they they've ever eaten a burger or they yeah. they you know wear a leather strap I mean there was a, a situation that that George Monbiot interview where he was where Piers Morgan just focused on his leather watch strap and said oh, really? you're, advocate, you're advocating less meat eating and vegan diets to save the planet but you've got a an animal product therefore everything you say can be dismissed yes. yeah um that is definitely a thing and obviously in the media However, I don't think because that happens, I don't think it means that everybody should say it really, you know, people's behavior doesn't matter and doesn't send mm. strong signals. So it's a path that needs to be to be trod because um, it serves certain interests to yeah. reject the focus on individual behavior as well. 
and the interests that it serves most are the people with the highest emissions. So if a narrative persists that, oh, well, individual emissions don't matter, it's all going to happen at systemic level and technology level, then the people who are happiest about that are the billionaires and the people who've got a private jet. Um, <laughs> what's it? A little secret? What's it? Bill Gates said that private jets are his um, naughty Guilty little secret. secret. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You know, th- those people are served by the narrative that individual behaviour doesn't matter. But my, my position is that we should be so shining the light upwards at them. Yeah. Um, people with power, people with very, very large outsized emissions and work downwards rather than, and you alluded to this earlier, rather than focusing on people who are already pretty good or at least haven't got much option mm. to change and saying, oh, you need to you know, shave another fraction yes. of a gram of yeah, yeah, That's not the right focus, I don't think. Yeah. So were you a bit gutted when you found that the influence, the the behavioural change, you know, that it was, you said it was a bit, it, it influenced people a bit. I was like, oh, I wanted it to be like 50% people, exactly like you did with the flying, you know, loads of people were therefore influenced to, to not fly. Um, I wasn't because, I mean, there's various technical reasons and I'd, I'd have, I'm still teasing these out, but essentially the, the Q material the way I've triggered a response is quite subtle in that it's a leader describing their behavior in one way in an interview. It's, it's the setups and media interview. The leader's being asked about climate change. They mention behavior change, saying it's necessary and technological change and um, government policy, international agreements, and also behavior change. The interviewer asks um, what behavior change they talk about the big ones that make a big difference and then the interviewer says have you done it yet and the, polit- the politician or the celebrity they either say yeah I've done it for the last couple of years I've been reducing my emissions um, reducing changing this behavior or in the other condition they say no I haven't done it yet but everybody can do it at the time that's right for them so those are the two conditions and so it's not advocating for change it's just the evidence of somebody doing it and somebody not so the fact that that has actually increased people's reported willingness themselves, I read that as being a, a significant result because the stimulus is quite is quite gentle in effect. Right. It's not like a very strong rhetorical advocacy for particular behaviour. It's just an example of somebody doing it or somebody not doing it. And that in itself triggers a response. So... I mean, obviously, I would have liked it to. I would have liked to. Sort of, what do I want to find? I would have liked it if it had been massive, but I don't think it's because it's it's an experimental condition which isn't a real situation anyway. The results are always going to have um, uh, sort of they're going to be separated from reality. Mm. You can't read it and say, "Oh, this maps exactly onto behavior change." But also, for instance, I'd say, "Well, this is it's a fictional interview." by one leader who the people filling out the survey have to imagine. So in terms of the connection, you could say, well, that's not the same as having a leader who you respect and admire in real life doing the same thing. It's, it's you know, it's a very different situation. Yeah. So, and also it's one person. So if one person does it, it has this, this much effect. But if many, many people do it, then that effect can amplify. 
Mm. So I think the obviously my the examiners and the people who review my papers may may take a view on this, but I think the results are actually quite strong, um, and they point towards some potential yeah. for leading by example. That's not to say it's it's definitely going to work. I mean, I personally I think it is, but do you think um, if Caroline Johnson? took the train and said everybody should you know I've taken the train everyone go brilliant yeah we were kind of expecting that from you Caroline um if Boris Johnson Keir Starmer somebody who's not well known for being an environmentalist in air quotes does that does that have more impact than I'm thinking there was a um a fast fashion documentary on a few years ago and it was uh Stacey Dooley did it and um I thought it was brilliant because we weren't expecting to hear that message from Stacey Dooley, someone like Liz Bonin or someone, you know, someone who is well known for being a sort of environmental presenter could have done it. And I don't think it would have had the impact it did. Had you sort of touched on any of that in your research? Not specifically, but I think you're right that um, I think the mo- probably the most important thing is how much you identify with the leader. Right. So, for instance... If you really identify with Caroline Lucas and she's doing that or she changes something, then that probably will have quite a strong influence on you. Even if it's not surprising, um, you probably have a strong influence. So I think the the identity with the leader is is very important. And similarly, if somebody who you don't identify with or you don't really like, then you're far less likely to take um, to pay attention to them or at least find ways to dismiss their action. That makes sense. So if if and, and I know we keep sort of um, coming back to Boris Johnson, but if he so if he you know chose to take a train, um, the fact that he had done that, you know, all those people who um, uh, associate, you know, I can't remember the, the phrase you used, um, uh, you know, closely associate with his values and all that sort of thing, they'd be like, oh, oh, he's doing that. Maybe I could have a go at that. If it's important to Boris, then maybe it should be important to me because I, uh, you know, share his values and those kinds of things. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's it's that's where the, the uh, this kind of social identity is really important. But it's also mm-hmm. where it's tricky for leaders, especially elected leaders, because they have to work within this social identity that they represent. So, yes. you know, Boris Johnson is that he, he represents a, a kind of social identity. People identify with him as representing their interests. Mm. He behaves in a way that might be considered outside of the norm for that group. Yeah. In effect, they've got a decision to make as to whether they still think he represents their interests. Yeah. Now, this is this is where leaders have a a tricky and um, yeah, a challenging and um, what's the word? Well, they have opportunity, but they also have risks in terms yes. of working with people's identities and shaping them and being um, entrepreneurs of identity is a, a phrase used by some some. Um, previous leadership scholars so leaders have the opportunity to stretch us and take us in directions that we might not have known we wanted to go in and that's where I think this this idea of leadership has has potential so for instance if Boris Johnson did that I mean he he probably could have easily have done it he could have got on a train and said I'm getting the train back because green issues are really important and people probably would have said well that's actually quite consistent with what he said verbally whether you believed he mean he really means yes. it, don't know. But people would have gone along with it. There are other activities which um, might be more challenging, and this is where this is one of the 
critiques of my theory of change in terms of leaders and role models and leading by example is that because people have these group identifications, people are just as likely to disidentify, just as likely to have a negative reaction to people they don't like doing something as they are to have a positive reaction to someone who's doing something they do like, or rather somebody they like who is doing something. And obviously in this country with climate change, it's probably not so much of a big thing. Obviously in the States, you can yeah. imagine it. It happened around mask wearing, where it in effect became a almost a political worldview position. You wore a mask if you were in a particular cultural view, you didn't if you weren't. So it yeah. became a polarizing thing. And I think the risk is that climate behavior could could go that route yeah but then it'll only go that route if people kind of want it to and in particular if leaders want it to yeah so what do we take from this if if you know I'm I'm sat here listening to this and I don't see myself as a leader particularly or you know I'm like well you know I'm I'm working a part-time job and I've got the kids and I've got that you know what's the message that we want people to take home from this is there anything that we want people to do differently as a result of it I'd say <laughs> Sorry, no, big question. no no it's fine I'm trying to think of the the most useful thing I mean I think the there are some really good ideas I'm sure you've come across them of your not your climate footprint or your carbon footprint but your climate shadow yes I love that so, one yeah yeah and I really you know I I'd buy into that in terms of where can you have the best effect. So explain for people who haven't come across this, because I don't think many people have, um, the the climate shadow idea, because we, we're probably all very relatively familiar with the carbon footprint, which is a measure of our direct emissions of how we heat our homes, how we travel, what food we eat, all those sorts of things. But the climate shadow is um, a different idea. Yeah, exactly. So it's this idea that your carbon footprint is obviously very much related to your activities and calculations of carbon emissions that are attributable to those, whereas your climate or carbon shadow is more your total influence in the world. Um, and it may be that some higher carbon activities are very necessary and very contributory to you having a positive effect on moving towards a more sustainable world. And so you shouldn't worry about the things that reduce your carbon footprint. You should just get on and do, I don't know whether it's advocacy or education or just being a good force for the, in the world in different ways um, and taking a more holistic view. Yeah, I, I read an article last year and it said, um, again, to come back to Greta as an example, in that she could have said, I'm really worried about climate change. I'm going to go vegan. And, and she would have ticked a box on a carbon footprint calculator and that would have had a, you know, chopped a, a ton or two off her carbon footprint. Great. Well done, Greta. That's amazing. Um, there's no box to tick on a carbon footprint calculator for starting a global movement and mobilizing millions mm-hmm. of people to, um, you know, it wouldn't have done anything to impact her carbon footprint, but actually it's, you know, her climate shadow because of that is absolutely huge in mm-hmm. the influence and the um, sort of ripples that that's had and all those sorts of things. So um, yeah, I'll link to the article that I've, I've read about it for people in the show notes. Yeah. So the other thing I want to touch on you've you've sort of looked specifically at, at leaders and leadership and that sort of thing but and in our mind I guess we're thinking about people with hundreds of thousands of millions of followers on social media we're talking about politicians MPs but actually you're a leader if you're the head teacher of a school or a head of a department or you know you run your own business or you have a family the the 
that definition of leadership, as far as I'm concerned, I'd be interested to hear your views on it, still mm. stands. And there are will be people who look up to you and who are influenced by the things that you do. Is that still important that, you know, on a micro leadership level, we are seen to be doing these things? Yeah, I think so. You've summed it up really well. I think everybody has the potential to be a leader in the sense of influencing others towards a common goal. That's one of the very basic definitions of leadership. And that influence can happen. And I guess that takes us back to the, the climate shadow idea is that where is where is your influence mm. most effectively deployed? And it may be in part through behavior because that sends signals. And this is what I'd say about my research is that your behavior can send signals. You might not see the results of them, but it can be part of the solution. And so, you know, for instance, I mean, Greta is obviously a classic example of somebody who just did something. She was a, you know, a school child and she did it and became this huge global leader, but she wasn't always that huge global leader, but she did something through her actions. I suppose there's a, you know, there's a question of expectations and expectation management. So you can't necessarily expect that what you do will have really visible results. But yeah, this idea of collective influence is, is really important. And it, it kind of is a useful area to look because we're constantly told that we're individuals. Um, and I think there's a, there's a huge contradiction actually in that we're told we're individuals and everything we do matters because we create our own lives. And yet we're also told that our individual behavior doesn't matter for climate change um, because it's irrelevant. And I, I think those two things are a massive contradiction. Um, if you look at it collectively and say, well, we're part of society that was kind of recreating itself and reproducing itself. Um, your behaviors do have the potential, you know, even if you're a, if you're a child, your behaviors and your, um, yeah, behaviors, your choices, your messages can influence your parents. And I think that's going on quite a lot at the moment yeah. where, where, you know, kids are influenced. I mean, we saw rather unsatisfactorily Rishi Sunak saying that the climate expert in his house was his kids. Um, and they now, told him he needed to do his recycling. Kids, but also <laughs> rather a bit of an abdication of, of responsibility yes. on his part. But I, th I think, yeah, just don't underestimate your own capacity, but also don't overestimate it and choose, you know, choose where to put your energy and time. But that, that thing about expectations is really interesting because you know, to, there's people in my audience and things who say, you know, oh, I've posted stuff on social media and it's just tumbleweed and it never feels like I'm engaging anybody and it's not making any difference. And then six months later, someone bounces up to them and said, oh, I saw those posts you did for Plastic Free July or you shared a veggie recipe or whatever. And actually it made me do X, Y and Z. Or you might be walking your kids to school rather than driving and somebody you don't know that somebody's seen you and gone, oh, I think they live up near us and maybe we could have a go at that. And, do you know, so sometimes we won't ever see or we won't see for a long time the impact of any ripples that we've had but we just have to assume that we're making them I think sometimes. Yes I think that's definitely the case people are very um, understandably unaware of the effects they have socially um, because we can't know how we're influencing other people from moment to moment and obviously um, people probably don't know if they're being influenced or not and it, it may happen down the line. I mean I, I would say as well that the behavior as aspect is important but only a piece of the picture and you know the most probably the most important piece of the picture 
is the political um, progress and the, the vested interests which are trying to delay climate action. Overcoming those barriers are the most important thing because no amount of behaviour change yes. is going to get over that alone. And so I suppose in terms of people's energy, I think, you know, there's been a criticism of the individual behaviour change narrative because it has assumed a theory of change. You know, everything's going to change because these individual actions will spill out and ripple out and everybody will change. Now, that's proven not to be the case and is unlikely to be the case on its own. From a personal perspective, that's why I focus on leaders, because I think they do have real power and also they are influenced by real power. And so if leaders are not doing something, then that in itself is highly indicative of a problem. Yeah. In a way that if people are on a grassroots level, you know, have far less responsibility and agency. So um, I would say make the changes. But if you're really wanting to make um, significant change from your position as a normal citizen, your energy is probably better directed at activism, political engagement, however you feel you can change the system. And the behaviour should go along with that, but isn't, you know, on, on its own yeah. going to do it. So um, I, I'm super aware of time, but I, I think I'm going to try, and I could ask you, I've got so many questions for you, but I'm going to try and limit myself to a final three. How do we influence our leaders? How do, can we influence our leaders? Can we make any change, make them change? I don't know. How do we do that? I think, you know, contacting them, campaigning is, is really important. So, you know, leaders react to, it depends what sort of leaders they are. You know, celebrities will react to certain things that make them more popular or feed into the things they want to reproduce. But, I mean, political leaders will react to, whatever they think is the, I mean, this is a, a slightly negative context, but whatever they think is the zeitgeist of mm. going to increase, this is what will increase going to get the them popularity, voted back in, essentially. earn them more votes. Yeah. That's not to say they're all cynical, but um, so campaigns that can tap into their, their sort of values and pet projects. I think that, you know, there's a multitude of ways, aren't there? You could, you can go in more um, critically and expose bad leadership where you can go in more on a sort of contributory basis and say how can we help this leader do the right thing yes um i think you know political campaigning or organizing is is you know you know is one of the most important things so whether that's joining groups you know coming together as a collective in whatever way is comfortable for you is is also one of the most important things so that, mm. you know that could be ngos that could be activist groups yeah could even be joining political parties okay so that was question one question two um in order for us to assess your leadership capabilities and to um take on board anything that you've said can you have you made any significant behavioral changes yourself i mean yeah since i I've, i stopped flying about i don't know six or seven years ago okay. having flown a lot so i felt like i'd used up my carbon budget yeah but quite, you know, quite well, more, well, way, way more than my carbon budget. So I stopped flying, which is not, I haven't found it difficult. And I've had a lot of 
great experiences from flying. So I don't feel like I'm missing out in the sense that um, other people might quite justifiably. And so personally, I never say that people shouldn't fly. Yeah. And certainly not younger people. I know not not all older people have flown a lot, but I certainly don't wouldn't say to young people, oh, you shouldn't fly because, you know, yeah. it's really bad for the environment, partly because I've done it loads. And also I don't really don't think that's fair. So I've done that. I've, I've gone pretty much vegan. But again, it's funny because I, it's a bit of a cliche, but I don't see these things as, I haven't experienced these things as sacrifices. Yes. Quite the, quite the opposite in some ways. Like the not flying thing is actually quite liberating. Um, I remember feeling much more pressure to be, do great things and go on great holidays. Right. And make the right choices about where to go and you know, you've got the whole world potentially, where, whereas now you think, okay, try and enjoy, enjoy things that are closer to home and have a closer relationship. But I do realise that's from a position of having done quite a lot yes. of travelling. So, and yeah, and I mean, I, this sounds like I, I don't have a car, but that's also something which is easy for me not to have. Again, I used to be really into cars and motorbikes. And so it's, um, that's also quite a liberating experience. But I, again, I don't, I certainly don't judge people for yeah. not doing all that stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's more or less easy. Everybody has their own circumstances yes. and, um, and also their, their sort of own hopes and dreams. So people should do what's, what feels right for them, but with yeah. open eyes, I think that's the thing be, you know, just being aware of, of what, um, what choices one is making and, um, yeah, the effects that it has. And then, um, Last question, um, what's next for you, if you're even allowing yourself to look ahead to finishing four years worth of work? Yeah, just um, so obviously finishing off the PhD, hopefully getting that over the line, there'll be an exam, mm. as in you get the PhD is scrutinised by very clever people, um, academics, and they essentially, it's called a defence, so yes. they attack it, I don't know if you're aware. So in effect, they're attacking your PhD for all the weaknesses that might be there and you have to defend it and prove that it's your work. So I'll try and get through that. And then maybe maybe have a job doing a kind of go-between between, between um, academia and organisations, companies that want to use the knowledge of behaviour change. Mm. So it's in effect kind of translating or being a, um, it's called knowledge exchange. So being in between academia and the real world, as it were, making making it easy for organisations to to behave in more sustainable ways. That's helping job. them to be better climate leaders, almost. Yeah, helping them to be better climate leaders, and yeah, do things that work, and yeah, get people on board. Yeah, amazing. So. Uh, if people want to get in touch or you're probably like, please don't, I don't know if you are or not, but um, yeah. is there anywhere people can come and find you? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. Um, we are more or less active. So my, <laughs> my handle is rather ridiculous. It's Stevie W um, oh, on Twitter I'll link, I'll link and on my email I'm at Cardiff University. So my email address, I'm happy to give out. Okay. Fab. I can, so I can, um, you can you're happy to the, share that. I can link it into yeah, the, into the show notes for people. Any, Interests. I mean, I've got, um, there's a couple of articles I've done for the conversation, which is a popular science. Yes, we've interviewed website. them on the site. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a couple of articles based on my master's research. And then we talked about Boris Johnson's choices. So I did an article about 
world needs and their travel choices and how that might um, work for or against climate action. So those are Oh, amazing yeah i'll dig those out and I'll, I'll link to them in the show notes as well for people thank you so much for your time i know um i've kept you longer than i promised and right. um, but it's absolutely nice fascinating i just think yeah such a fascinating area to dig into and as you say so much potential for change a lot of change to happen very quickly if we can maybe find the right levers to um to press and things like that i think so i think social norms um they can change and there's an appetite for it as well. I think most people can see the contradiction, which is where leadership comes in. I think I think most people can see the contradictions between high carbon lifestyles and the need for, you know, really rapid climate action. So I think there could be tipping points and spillovers that happen quite rapidly if if leaders would step up. So that's my call to action. Yes, yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks, Jen. We enjoyed it. You've been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review, and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is, and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.